0: I don't really believe too much in a work-life balance. I think that it's your business is your life, and your life is your business, and you need to be happy in that.
1: Uh, entrepreneurs have a different story. They go
0: and they follow a burning desire in their gut.
1: You're listening to Move Your Business to the United States with me, your host, Kevin Turley.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century... ...this world was being watched closely by intelligences... ...greater than man's... ...and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings... ...busied themselves about their various concerns... ...they were scrutinized and studied... ...perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope... ...might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water.
1: Hi, we are back in London. In fact, the Mount Bunnell team are back in the offices at Baker Street. And as in the best Sherlock Holmes stories, a knock comes to the door. And soon after we have a visitor and an adventure, if in our case only in sound. Declan Ganley is a successful businessman, an enterprising entrepreneur on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. Declan came to talk to us about making it big in America and how his childhood experiences in Ireland helped propel him to his current success. So today we're in London in the Mount Bunnell headquarters here on Baker Street. And uh, we have with us a very special guest who is um, both an entrepreneur and also a European entrepreneur who does an awful lot of business in the United States. So, so far on the show, we've had mostly uh, Americans or British or Europeans based in the United States. This is our first interview this side of the Atlantic with somebody who is working across the Atlantic. And I'm going to let him introduce himself.
0: I'm uh, Declan Ganley. I'm the chairman and CEO of Rivada Networks. I'm Irish. Um, I'm uh, married to an American uh, girl from Staten Island, New York. Um, I'm a a technology entrepreneur. I've been an entrepreneur uh, since the uh, late 1980s. I started off when I was 19 years old. And I've been in the wireless industry uh, since 1994, uh, when I put together a consortium to bid for the second cell phone license in Ireland. And then I, years after that, set up BroadNet and rolled out fixed wireless networks across 10 countries in Europe, and founded Rivada Networks, uh, um, the business that I'm now chairman and CEO of in 2004, uh, to uh, deploy uh, networks uh, across the US. um, First of all, initially for public safety, and uh, now to a a much broader scope um, of, um, of of an addressable market.
1: So, not much experience there, Sebastian.
3: Well, yeah, definitely. You know, I had difficulties to keep up, you know. So, I mean, yeah, um, a lot of details there. Um, so, can you describe a little bit your U.S. operations that you have right now? I mean, maybe in terms of size, you know, employees, uh, where the company is based, and so on and so forth.
0: Rivada is uh, a company, as I say, it was set up in, in 2004. Um, the first contract that we, we had in, in the U.S. was with uh, NORAD U.S. Northern Command, which was to do their concept of operations and concept of execution for deployable emergency broadband communications. And and that actually levered a lot off the experience that I had had deploying uh, broadband networks in Europe um, with BroadNet, which I founded uh, in the 90s. Uh, we would deployed twen- uh, f- the top 42 towns and cities in Germany, the top 14 in France, Basel, Bern, Zurich, Geneva, and Switzerland, and, and anyway, many other uh, places. And so we... Um, Use that experience and, and and really put it to work. And uh, as we looked at the U.S. Uh, uh, challenge, and um, and as we developed solutions for uh, disaster response I- in the U.S. for Norad, U.S. Northcom, um, it became very clear to us that there was both an opportunity and and indeed a need to change the way that we uh, deliver capacity on wireless networks. That actually. The old way of auctioning off spectrum um, uh, that had started in the late 1990s was erroneous and uh and needed to be addressed uh and was going to end up uh, and uh, i had op-eds at the time and, and interviews that i gave at the time it was it would end up really harming and, and ultimately killing the west's lead in wireless technologies and uh so rivada focused then on developing patents and inventing technology for dynamic spectrum arbitrage, open access wireless markets, a marketplace for uh, capacity on networks and uh, location-based services uh, uh, technology so that you could pinpoint to within a, a 25 cubic uh, 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 centimeters exactly where a device was, even without GPS. We invent, we, we currently have um, over 200 patents granted with many more in the pipeline. Um, we built a team drawing, I, I went after the best minds in the industry um, in the US and, 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 and overseas uh, from the US and uh, put together an engineering team. So the core group uh, in Rivada is just over 100 people, That's of PhDs, um, scientists um, and others. Uh, uh, you know, people with specific areas of disciplines, discipline that are relevant. You know, network deployment. We hired the former CIO of Sprint. Um, we uh, hired uh, here in the UK um, the uh, David Hendon, who was the CEO of the Radio Communications Agency, which became Ofcom, and put together a very strong. We hired uh, Elizabeth Moore, who was the head of Debt Capital Markets at Nomura, uh, the bank. Um, so that's the core team. Of senior executives that we've—I mean, there are many more—but a brilliant team of people drawn from a cross range of disciplines, not just technology, but from from banking, from regulatory uh, agencies, uh, from even from journalism. Uh, Brian Carney, um, uh, we hired—I hired Brian. Hired Brian, he was on the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal, and uh, was the, the the editorial page editor of the Wall Street Journal Europe. And uh, actually, I, I had a dare with Brian one day. I, I, we we were both at a dinner in the middle of Europe somewhere, and Brian was talking and spouting on about something or other, making a great case for capitalism. And I said, you know, you need to stop preaching capitalism and start coming, start practicing it. And he, he said, is that a are you, are you? Is that a dare? I said, yes. He said, okay. He said, make me an offer. <laughs> So I did, and that was five years ago. So uh, it's a great team of people, a wonderful board, and um, and a great group of investors and shareholders, all of whom are committed to the mission of really radically changing um, the way that we deliver wireless uh, in a way that's going to democratize access, lower barriers to entry, and fire up the economies of the countries where where this gets adopted. The US economy, of course, being front and foremost for us, but also Europe and and Latin America and many other places around the world. This, what we are doing and what we've developed here, and and, and in advocating uh, open access wholesale wireless markets, um, getting Wall Street to back that big infrastructure funds and others, being prepared to put their money behind these deployments, Um, You know, it's hated by the incumbents. Um, The incumbents have been turned really not through any fault of their own, but into giant rent seekers. So we have been in in the West put at a a great disadvantage um, because of uh, really the high price of, of accessing capacity. Uh, and what what Rivadas uh, all about is is changing that and and uh, and boosting economic uh, activity because of it
3: that sounds really fascinating um Declan so you also involved um, in the new deployment of 5g technology yes uh, so a lot of Rivada's patents are very uh, central
0: to, to 5g now we have not and we deliberately, did not um, actively participate in the so-called standards forums because um, they, the standards forums, are not built for. Um, you have to be a giant company like Huawei, or, you know, that kind of scale to be able to. It's almost like you have to set up like a government department to participate in these things. They take a long time. But the thing about these standards forums is while you can go in and you can get your patents made standards, that does not invalidate your patent. If, you, if you're if you not at that table and something is made a standard but you have a patent covering it, then you have a standards valid patent. Um, so we thought we won't go into those forums. The, those forums happen to be dominated by China on, on for 5G. Um, but we have IP that is that the standards now if you like, uh, cross. And um, and because there are, are, are some of these things land right on top of our patents, um, you know, we will uh, be uh, exercising our, our, our rights where that's concerned.
1: Declan, there's absolutely no doubt that you have uh, had a very, very successful career as an entrepreneur, both in Europe and in North America. This show is about successful entrepreneurs moving and expanding their business into the United States. You have done business both sides of the Atlantic. What advice would you give if somebody was to bump into you today in London, say in a a restaurant or a bar, and said to you, Declan, I'm thinking of moving my business, a very successful European business, entrepreneurial business, to the United States. What would be the key piece of advice that you would start to offer that person?
0: Well, if I met them in a restaurant and a bar and they asked me that question, I'd say, "Pick up my tab here," and I might give you some information. <laughs> the 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 uh, the the, the um, my, my advice to no, I did it. So, Rivada, when it was born, uh, was an Irish company, um, and yeah. But the thing about Ireland is is you know, great, great country and all, but but you know, very small population, um, and uh, and then. I had already done a rollout in Europe with Broadnet, which was fantastic, and and uh, had a very positive experience with that. But I also knew that contending with you know twenty eight different regulators um, was not easy, um, and that that made the ability to do the kind of revolutionary act that we wanted to do in wireless in Europe was going to be a, a much much steeper hill to climb, and America is, you know, and people say all sorts of things about America, but it is the best place to go to seek opportunity. The barriers to entry are not low, but you won't find them lower anywhere else in the world. Um, The opportunity is enormous because it provides scale like nowhere else provides scale. And it provides rule of law like few other places uh, provide rule of law. So you have a common law country that has rule of law, that uh, offers scale that are our kith and kin. I'm Irish, I mean, I've, I've got more relatives in America than I have in Ireland at this point. Um, my wife's American, my kids are American. Uh, they, they've all got American citizenship as well. And, uh, and I love America, I was brought up to love America. I mean, you you, you understand that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm of that, I was born in 1968 Um, you know, middle of the cold war, I, you know, earliest discussions I can remember in my house were about, you know, I remember my father say long before Ronald Reagan said, you know, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. My father said, I won't believe anything that those crowds say, the Soviets until that wall comes down. And, uh, the, so I was brought up to be anti-communist, anti-collectivist. Uh, believe in free markets. My father was a small businessman here in in, in in the UK, an Irish guy from the west of Ireland that had moved here, so set up a small construction business, and uh, was given every opportunity. And I always knew that America was a place where opportunity like that existed, but on a much bigger scale. And so I wanted to be there anyway. Um, when I had to raise money, when I was uh, when I was in my early twenties. One of the things I did is I went to Russia and I privatized twenty-eight sawmills, as as one does. And uh, the I, you know I I knew the Soviet Union was going to collapse, watched it happening, and uh, privatized these sawmills. Ended up selling that business to George Soros and Renaissance Capital. It's not that George and I would agree on on politics, but his money's good. And uh, the the um, I, I I sold that business in August of ninety-seven. But when I had to raise money to go out and make those acquisitions. I mean even in London honest you know I wouldn't be let in the door of most places here I was what 22 23 years old I mean nobody i had no college degree nothing. Um, I, I wouldn't even get in the door of most places here in London. I went to New York and I was able to raise the money. Um, and the Americans still have an appetite for you know risk like nobody else and uh That's what you need when you're an entrepreneur.
2: Ireland has already set an example and a standard for other small nations to follow. This has never been a rich or powerful country. And yet since earliest times, its influence on the world has been rich and powerful. No larger nation did more to keep Christianity and Western culture alive in their darkest centuries. No larger nation did more to spark the cause of American independence, and independence indeed around the world. And no larger nation has ever provided the world with more literary or artistic genius. This is an extraordinary country. George Bernard Shaw, speaking as an Irishman, summed up an approach to life. Other people, he said, see things and say, why? But I dream things that never were, and I say, why not?
1: In terms of your own entrepreneurial path, I'm I'm sort of fascinated why or how at 22 or 23, whatever it was, you had the, the vision and you had the... The, the courage to do that. Just broadening it out a little bit. What you know, this show is for entrepreneurs, and most entrepreneurs that are listening to it will have started their own business and have been on that journey. A number of people we've spoken to have given their opinion on what it is, the sort of the key thing for an entrepreneur to have when starting out on those journeys or keeping going on those journeys. What in your opinion is is that key ingredient that that you notice in other entrepreneurs, maybe you notice in yourself, that that has made you last the course and, and been very successful along the way?
0: Really, really, really hard work and tenacity. Never give in. Um now that doesn't mean that you shouldn't walk away from a particular project if you find if you have experimented with something and it doesn't work. You know that's that's a successful experiment. You can find out something doesn't work, walk away from it, move on to the next thing, but and apply the lessons learned. Um, it's interesting. I think it was only last week there was a study. I can't remember which university put it out, but there was something uh, talking about that 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 a trait that they're noticing now in in so-called successful entrepreneurs is that they all had very early engagement or experience with sales, very early, when they were very young. So they're out selling something. Now, in my case, that was true. It was driven by necessity. Um, we moved back from um, from England to, to Ireland when I was 13, just turning 13 years old. And um, I wanted to make a few quid. And, uh, so, I mean, you'll understand Kevin that they have these peat bogs in Ireland and, um, I went and I rented a stretch of peat bog and I hired in a turf machine and I paid for the rent for the turf machine that would cut the peat with, uh, with some of my confirmation money that I had saved up and, uh, and cut, um, and you know, you get an odd, tenner off an aunt from in Ackle Island or, you know, your grandparents or whatever. But I had enough, I think it was 150 or something to rent this turf machine. And I cut this huge amount of turf and saved it uh, that summer. And I ended up selling 77 big trailer loads of peat fuel. Um, And I would go to the local markets with a tractor and trailer, my father's tractor and trailer, and I remember the 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 uh, there's a place called Dunmore in County Galway, a rural town in the west of Ireland, and uh, they had a, they would have their fair day on whatever day it was, and uh, so that all the stalls would set out. So the thing about the Dunmore fair is you had to get there to get a good spot, you had to get there at like four a.m. So I hit off in the tractor and trailer. It was about a nine mile journey at God knows oh dark thirty got to Dunmore and got the prime spot on the corner of the square and set my trailer up, went and parked the tractor somewhere else and put my big sign on the trailer. And it was, you know, trailer load of turf, whatever it was, 70 pounds a load, I can't remember, but whatever it, whatever the number was. And uh, so I'm standing there in, in Dunmore Square with my sign on the trailer and the big trailer load of turf. And my grandfather's uh, uh, sister was a, a, a woman of some standing in the town. They had a shop and a petrol station and they were kind of, you know yourself. She was a great lady, Auntie Kitty. And apparently Auntie Kitty saw me from through the shop window and was horrified because only street urchins sold turf. <laughs> and so my she sends out a cousin of mine and he comes out and it's about 7.30 in the morning. He comes out and he said, um, oh, your Auntie Kitty wants to buy the trail load of turf off you. Oh, oh, fantastic. Great. And he said, you can, you know, drop it around the back in the shed or whatever. And I said, Grant, I'll, I'll do it later on. He said, good. So anyway, probably two or three hours went by and I'm still there. So he comes out again. He said, your Auntie Kitty wants to know why you're still here. <laughs> I said, I've got, I've got 70 more loads of these to sell. And he burst out laughing. <laughs> She was trying to get me off the streets, <laughs> And then I would buy, the other thing I would do is I would buy those, those electronic games from Argos actually over here and bring them over to Ireland. And I used to rent them out to, to, to in school, to, to, to other kids in school for, you know, 10p a night or whatever it was. And I was always hustling to make a few quid. And the, 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 the headmaster of my school would allow me to go downtown to the Ulster Bank in Glenamady. And I used to buy and sell shares and place my orders through the Ulster Bank. So I was doing all of that when I was, you know, 15, 14, 15, 16 years of age. So it was in the blood. And uh, I knew that I wanted to be in business from, I certainly knew it by the time I was 15.
1: Hi, you're listening to Move Your Business to the United States. Just a quick word from our sponsors, Mount Bunnell Advisors. The people there have been advising clients on moving stateside for years. For all your needs, both business and practical, head over to mountbunel.com to find out more. Thanks for listening. Declan, do you think that the experience of... Um your parents coming from Ireland to England, and your father setting up business, um, and then you going from England to Ireland and and doing your starting your entrepreneurial activities while young. Do you think that has given you a certain sort of mobility internationally that that you don't actually, you know, the way some people are slightly constrained by their circumstances, either they're too comfortable or they're not comfortable enough. But you you know because you, the way you described your business at the start, it's so international and it's so mobile, literally, uh, all over the place. Do you think that experience of of being an immigrant in whatever country it is, or a lot of the people we're talking to are emigrating to the United States, moving their business and also emigrating. Do you think there's something that the entrepreneurial mindset lends itself to that adventure like nothing else, I guess?
0: If you're an emigrant immigrant, you're taking a risk of some kind. And, and, you know, every study you look at, there's a disproportionately higher a, a, accounting for entrepreneurship in immigrant communities. Um, and it's because there is clearly an appetite for risk; otherwise, they wouldn't be there. I mean, they, they have accepted that they are going to dislodge themselves from from what is normal for them and put them into another themselves into another situation. So that. I suppose a willingness to accept dislocation, whatever it may be, it may be for the better, it may be for the worst. I think is part of the mindset. Uh, You don't have to be an immigrant to to be a successful entrepreneur. There's plenty of them that aren't. But uh, I think it it certainly in my case it sowed curiosity. It sowed curiosity. I mean, look, the reason I went to Russia, and this is going to sound completely wacko to most of your listeners, I I was brought up in a very orthodox Catholic family, and my my mother, my grandmother, my mother used to make. We used to have to pray the rosary every night in in our house, and one decade of the rosary was always for the conversion of Russia. And you know, when you're seven years old, that leaves an impression on you because you think, "Wow, these guys must be really bad." <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't need Ronald Reagan to tell me that it's the evil empire. I knew that already, and uh, so I, I wanted to go to Russia early because I wanted to see what the thing was about. And when I went there, it became very clear that it was a giant Potemkin village, that, that the Soviet Union was this hollowed out, rotten thing uh, that was on the verge of collapse, and collapse it did. And it was great to witness this in, in, in so many ways.
1: Sebastian, that experience of the immigrant experience, in terms of the clients that you're working with that are in the United States, would, would, you, would you say that Declan's onto something there with that whole idea of the risk-taking?
3: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I think uh, Declan is absolutely right. You know, with that, I mean, uh, there are many people who say, you know, that they will never leave. You know, where they are from, um, they will never leave even the town or the village where they are from, and um, they can become successful in their own right. But I think if you if you are serious about starting a business, then you definitely have to um, expand your perspective and look beyond. You know, what is just uh, what is just in front of you so um yeah i I, I totally agree that uh, for for most of our clients, um so we have many clients for example from Germany, and I guess it's even more a bigger step you know when you speak a different language than English you know so with without with with being from Britain or from Ireland, at least the language isn't you know it's similar or the same, you know. My experience is, is specifically in the States, and I lived there uh, for a number of years, that um, the United States are very friendly, especially towards Europeans. Um, they find them interesting. They find them maybe, maybe even slightly more intelligent, you know. Um, so I think the United States are very welcoming um, to European entrepreneurs. Would you agree with that? Very much so. Now, you know, it's, it's, it, it is an important point that you made because it, it is a
0: bit different for somebody that's a non-English speaker um, uh, going, going to America. It was, it was very easy for me. I mean, I already, as I said, I had more relatives in, in America than I probably do at home in Ireland. I mean, first cousins, uncles, you name it. They're, you know, they're, they're over there. I mean, we would say, my mother comes from Ackle Island off the west coast of Ireland. They would say, you know, the next, the neighboring parish is Boston. I mean, that, that's what, and, that, and that's very much how they thought. They thought transatlantically. It was, it's in the culture. It's even in the accent um, those ties and they go way back. I mean, they're they, you, a couple of hundred years now. One of my great grandparents' sets of great grandparents were married in Boston. Um, they eloped uh, and, and they got married in Boston, and they eventually came back. My fourth great grandfather was one of the early sort of new Catholic landlords in Ireland because he bought uh, part of Ackle Island off the uh, the Marquis of Sligo, um, having come back from America and having. Um, made some money, we think, in the in the California Gold Rush. So these ties are are, are are and have always been there. For a German, you know, going to 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 America, it, it is a bit different. But uh, the Americans, I mean, they love the Irish. I mean, you know, it was St Patrick's Day, you know, a few days ago, and, you know, the whole country turns green. Everybody's Irish for the day. I mean, we're the only uh, Ireland is the only country in the world that has a meeting with the president of the United States on the schedule every year, year in, year out. Um, That's a very privileged position uh, uh, to be in for such a small place. Look, there's huge cultural ties between all of Europe and the US. They have great respect for European entrepreneurs. The West really means something, especially in the post-1945 environment. The West really means something. And it's really important. I'm worried about that and I'm worried about that slowly becoming unglued. Um, but for me I you know, I am an atlanticist. I actually used to have that on my Twitter profile, one of the things that said atlanticist, uh, an yeah, entrepreneur da, da, atlanticist. And too many people would ask me, "Well, what is that?" You know, they thought it was some somebody with gills or something. But <laughs> but 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 uh, that Transatlantic relationship is essential for Europe, it's essential for the US, and, and I think very important for the rest of the world.
1: Well, Deglan, I don't think you're going to find any disagreement around this table on, on all of you've said. Certainly, Sebastian's experience, who's lived and worked in the United States and run businesses over there, and, and yourself. Okay, let, let's. Somebody listening to this is either in the process of moving to the United States or thinking about it. Now, let's have a little bit of a reality check. What is the thing that's the hardest being European working? in the United States, well, there there are, I mean, we were in, we've been in Texas a few times in the last couple of months, and, and every time I go, you, there's something that strikes you, which reminds you that, although it is very familiar in all sorts of ways, there is something very different about the United States as well. Um, without wishing to be negative about it, what's the most challenging aspect of doing business
0: in the United States for a European company? Uh, oh, okay, well, that's very specific. What's the most challenging aspect? For a European, well, I'm not a European company. I'm an American company. Um, uh, So Rivada is an American company, American parent. Um, But take your point. uh, For for a European in America, the most challenging aspect, look, it's the same everywhere. It's breaking into and challenging incumbents. If you want to do something really big, but I mean, if you're going to open, you know, some candy stores or something, I think you're probably okay, right? But if if, if you're going to go in and you want to disrupt the business model of AT and T, which is what I want to do, that's one of the things I, I, I you know, I I, I take pride in, in in our mission to disrupt that in a way that's really good for them. And I hope you hear this, AT and T, it's going to be good for you in the end, and uh, and it really is going to be good for them in the end. I'm not saying that sarcastically, but to disrupt business models. Coming up against what I call crony corporatism, regulatory capture, Uh, deep, deep deep-seated relationships and big, fat, happy um, crony corporatists who like to rent-seek and don't want to be disrupted. But look, that's the story of industry and of innovation. Those guys have always been there. They always fight a big rearguard action. You know, it's something that I have found um, is particularly challenging, and I think, and I, I know from other entrepreneurs, whether they're European entrepreneurs or they're, or, or they're, they're non European entrepreneurs, that's something everybody encounters the power of incumbency, the regulatory capture, the crony corporatism, um, challenging that and breaking it. It's hard, but I'll say this for America it's hard everywhere. It's hard, but in America, America will give you a chance to do that. Won't make it easy but it will give you a chance to do that like nowhere else will give you a chance to do that. I'm not saying it's easy. You know, they have all those problems. They're all there. But the American spirit is always willing to uh, to give the the pioneer. As someone said, a pioneer is a guy with an arrow in his back, right? I mean, they're willing to give the pioneer a chance. And institutionally, even though there may be special relationships and regulatory capture and everything else, they've got that sense of sheer curiosity. They like the scrapper. They like David going up against Goliath. Because America's all about David going up against Goliath. America was David. And okay, it's Goliath now, but it was David. And that's that's what that's what being American is all about. It's taking on, you know, I love to go to Mount Vernon. I've been there. I must've been, it's a joke in my family. Mount Vernon was George Washington's house out in Northern Virginia. It's not far outside Washington DC. And you go out to that guy's house and visit it and walk through it and understand that this guy took on the most powerful empire that the world had ever seen at that point. This little yeoman farmer. And he thought it can be done. That's the American spirit right there. You can feel it right at Mount Vernon, and it inspires me.
3: Yeah, no, I would totally agree with that. I mean that you know that sympathy with the underdog, I think, um, is definitely is definitely there in the states, and it's a lot easier than it is in Europe um, to basically, or, you know, get a chance to disrupt market. I think here, although um, it's not maybe as visible corporatism, but it's probably worse than it is, you know, in the states because here. It's almost unbreakable in Europe, you know, um, because it's also involved with politics. And many times these structures in Europe, you know, through the guilds have been established since the Middle Ages. So we're talking about centuries of conglomerates, you know, um, of nepotism, of all sorts of, you know, um, corruption in a sense, you know. Um, and that, is, that does not exist um, in the state. So I, I think I would agree. Um, it's definitely... Uh, easier to break into the market into the states, Declan. I mean, do you see um, America changing over the last few decades since you are since you're aware of it? And do you see this? Uh, is there positive change or negative change? Are you worried? What's your opinion about that?
0: I, I am worried, um, but sometimes I think it's just because I'm older. And uh, <laughs> so, when I was 22, I didn't realize how many things could go wrong, and 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 yeah, you know, <laughs> and now I do. <laughs> But look, I mean, some of the debates that are going on now, I mean, you look at this new Green Deal and, and, and like look through it, it's it's just Marxism wearing a green jacket. The fact that these arguments that are being made by the likes of Bernie Sanders and AOC and you know, all the people like that where stuff that was tried and tested in the Soviet Union and, and in the Warsaw Pact countries and in you know, more recently in Venezuela and everything else. I mean, this this Crazy stuff that has been tried, failed, cost lives, destroyed so many, so much opportunity, innovation, families. To see people advocating this stuff in America now—nothing like that has happened in the in America since the 1930s. I mean, we're really close to being. I mean, it's now acceptable to say, you know, you're a, a left-wing socialist in America. To Say you're a communist is only one very, very short step, and I can't tell the difference when you read what they're proposing. Um, so that worries me. Um, and yet, and I've, I've made this case many times in through different administrations, America still has that great self-correcting ability. It can tack one way between left and right and, and run this line like n- no other system can. Um, and I think that's because of the system that the founders put in place. Um, you have a bicameral legislature that still works as a bicameral legislature should. You have recognition of states and the say of states. It is a true republic, and it operates as a true republic. It is not a popular democracy um, with you know a, a, the popular democracy that you know the likes of you know of Plato warned us about you know the worst excesses of it. And, uh, and it works, and it works for that reason. So when you see people saying, well, we've got to get rid of the electoral college or we we, we need to, uh, I mean, that, that would mean that eight states in America decide who who runs the country. Um, the, the, the the American Republic is not necessarily the most ideal system, but it is the least worst system in the world, what we have right now. and um, And I have great faith in it. Declan,
1: this has been a very interesting discussion. I'm sure you'd agree, Sebastian.
3: Yeah, totally. Fascinating. Absolutely.
1: So, Declan, you've just got... I mean, you are an embodiment of what many people listening to this will want to be. You've just flown in from New York. You're heading off to another meeting in London. And uh, I don't know where you're going tonight. Is it Moscow or is it Ballina? I'm going to Moy, County Galway. (laughs) Well, it's close to Ballina. (laughs) Well, Declan, thank you very much for taking time out on your busy schedule and uh, inspiring many who will listen to this to, to, to make that voyage of discovery, like some Brendan of old, across the seas to America. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Next time on Move Your Business to the United States.
3: So a lot of people choose to start businesses in Texas because there is no state level income tax for individuals. So that's true for Florida as well Um, in a couple of
1: other states but that's a big advantage you've been listening to move your business to the United States with me Kevin Turley a huge thanks to my producer Emmett Glynn who produced this podcast for Mount Bunnell Media. to find out more go to mountbunnell.com and remember dream big dream america